Are you ready to make a difference in your career? Discover a different way forward with an education that fits into your life. Capella University's FlexPath learning format lets you take courses at your speed and move on to the next course whenever you're ready. Visit capella.edu to learn more. That's C-A-P-E-L-L-A dot E-D-U. When it comes to finding an unforgettable Mother's Day gift, Movement makes stylish watches and inspired jewelry as unique as she is. Movement's small team of dreamers in Venice Beach, California have perfected sleek, original, ultra-clean watch design and stunning, minimalist jewelry. And for Mother's Day, they're having a huge site-wide sell, so you can get a tried-and-true gift that won't break the bank. Movement offers fresh, modern designs to go from 9 to 5 workdays to 5 to 9 good times and every adventure in between. They use elegant, precise Japanese watch movements and industry-leading materials from complex ceramics, solar-powered dials, to upcycled ocean plastic cases. So I've got a Movement watch. I got their field watch. What I like about the Movement field watch, it has that classic military uh, look of a field watch, but made it really sleek. I really like that. Uh, so it's that combination of rugged and refined that I like. So if you're looking for a Mother's Day gift, watch, jewelry, sunglasses, you can get it at Movement Watches. Save big on your best Mother's Day gift ever from Movement. Get up to 40% off at MVMT.com and use code MANLINESS. Exclusions may apply. That's MVMT.com, code MANLINESS for up to 40% off. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Dip your toes in the world of personal finance, and you can find plenty of questions that are the subject of endless debate. How much of your income should you save? Is it okay to take on debt? Which is better, renting a home or owning one? When it comes to the stock market, should you buy the dip? On his blog of Dollars and Data, my guest cuts through the personal finance noise by finding answers based on numbers rather than conjecture, and then converting this research into advice the average person can understand. His name is Nick Majuli, and he's the Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist at Ritholtz Wealth Management, as well as the author of Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Today on the show, Nick explains what the data says about how you should approach the questions I've already mentioned. He also shares how to spend your money without feeling guilty by using the 2x rule, the three criteria you should meet before you consider buying a home, the best way to approach the idea of dollar cost averaging, and more. We end our conversation with the right mindset to adopt in our volatile economy. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash finance answers. All right, Nick Majuli, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So you are the Chief Operating Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, and you got a new book out called Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Wealth. And this is where you just use a lot of data to show people how to manage or think about their money at different parts of their financial life. But you got an interesting background because you didn't start off your career in wealth management. How did you get involved with wealth management and personal finance? Yeah, so I originally started in litigation consulting which is a little different from management consulting because it's like backward looking and very analytical while management consulting is very forward looking, trying to improve a business, et cetera. But basically how I got into wealth management was I, you know, I was like, Hey, I'm going to start blogging. I like personal finance and investing. I'm going to start writing about it. And the beginning of 2017, it was like a side hustle type thing. I wasn't really making money on it for at the beginning. And I met a lot of people through Twitters, through promoting the blog and some of those people, I actually went out to a conference in late 2017, met some of these people in real life who actually had a wealth management firm. And that's how they kind of brought in leads was through content marketing. And we hit it off really well. And, you know, next thing you know, you know six months after that, mid-2018, I, I joined a wealth management firm, which I'm still at today, Ritholt. So it's been a fun journey just doing that, how you can you know, take a, a side hustle and kind of now it's 
kind of my main hustle too. It's that they're both very correlated in that way. So it's been a very fun journey. Well, what's been your approach to financial writing? Because you have a blog, it's called you know, Dollars and Data. So it, you use a lot mm-hmm. of data. So what, what kind of data are you looking at to help just regular people inform their personal finance decisions? I mean, a lot of the data I'm using is, you know, market data. I'm, I'm trying to see like, okay, you know, for example, U.S. stock returns or international stock returns and just analyzing it in a lot of different ways, whether we're doing a timing question, like how often should you be buying? Should you buy the dip? These types of questions that people have, you know, there's a lot of data there. There's also data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like on consumer expenditures, how people are spending money, all those types of questions. There's just data out there that you can dig into and just, you know, answer questions and see if, you know, a lot of the beliefs we have are true or not. And I think in in the book and just keep buying, I basically took my greatest hits of stuff I've been writing over the last five years and just put it all into one place and said, hey, you know, here's here's what people think is true and here's what the data says and here's what I found, you know. And I think that's been really helpful just to kind of go through a lot of our core beliefs in personal finance and investing and, you know, debunk the ones that I don't think are real. So let's talk about some of these principles and these greatest hits you write about in Just Keep Buying. The first principle you talk about is it's kind of it's kind of in your face. It's saving is for the poor, investing is for the rich. What do you mean by that and how are you defining poor and rich? Well, in, in this case, when I say poor, I mean it on both an absolute level and a relative level. So when I say absolute, like if you're truly just don't have any money, you're you know below the poverty line. But also for someone who's like, let's say, you know, late teens, early 20s, maybe they're starting to work for the first time, I would consider them poor relative to their future selves, right? Assuming they're going to, you know, save and invest diligently, et cetera. And so when I say poor, I'm saying like, the issue, I really realized all this, you know, when I was 23 years old, I spent so much time like, you know, trying to pick my asset allocation, overanalyzing my investments. But at the time, you know, when I was 23, I only had $1,000 to my name. So like, even if I got, you know, a 10% return, that's, you know, what's the math on that? $100 in a year. And yet at the same time, I was going out and, you know, blowing $100 by, you know, going to dinner, going getting drinks, you know, Uber home, all that stuff, you know, and there goes $100 like that. So like my investment return for an entire year, I could have spent in one night easily when I was living in San Francisco at the time. So I think when I say savings for the poor, it's like, what do you need to focus on when you're 23 years old or 22 or just kind of getting into the job market or you don't have a lot of money? You need to focus on your savings. You need to focus on, you know, earning more income so you can actually save money. Spending all this time trying to over-engineer your investment portfolio is mostly wasted time, you know, for someone. I'm not saying you shouldn't learn about it. I think knowledge is always helpful. But, you know, I know people that spend so much time trying to analyze the markets, this and that. And it's like, it's like, bro, you have like $10,000 to invest. Even if you could get a, you know, a 10% alpha, that's $1,000. And how many hours did you spend to get that $1,000, right? You probably would have been better off working at McDonald's in a side job, you know? And when you actually analyze the, the number of hours people put in for something, like just to try and get extra return, it's, it's ridiculous. So I think that's where that phrase comes from. Because when you're poor and you don't have a lot of money, you really need to focus on your savings. And then once you actually build up a nest egg, you have a lot of money or considerable amount of money, then you can start like really focusing on your investment. That's where every little percentage makes a difference. Because like on a, like let's imagine on $10 million. I imagine you had 10 million bucks, a, a 1% difference, you know, is pretty significant versus, you know, a 1% difference on a thousand dollars is nothing. Right. So that's kind of the main takeaway there. Gotcha. And when you, when you say saving, like you need to save your money, you're not saying just put it in a bank account. You're, like, you're, you're going to be investing it, but you're just not focused on like allocation and like market, you know, all the, this weird stuff uh, with you can do with investing. Yeah, yeah. So I apologize. So when I say savings for the rich, like you need to save that money, and of course you have to invest it. Like that's that's the 
the premise of the book is like you're always investing your money. It's just you need to focus more on, you know, how much you can actually, you know, save and invest early on before you start over-optimizing every single thing in your investment portfolio. So I'm not saying allocation doesn't matter at all. That would be silly. But it's just like you don't need to spend all the hours I spend like trying to, you know, supercharge my investments when you don't have a lot of money. Like now that I'm 32, I you know, it matters a lot more than when I was 23, right? So right. that's the kind of the main takeaway. And the easiest way to, you know, I talk about this in the book in the first chapter, which I think is one of the most valuable chapters in there is just like, think about how much you can save in the next year. That's some amount, right? Let's say you could save, I don't know, $5,000 in the next year. Okay. Well, how much can your investments earn you in the next year, right? Let's say you took a, a you know, a fair, let's say you're going to get a 5% return. If you had, you know, 10,000 bucks, that's, you know, $500, right? So $5,000 you could save versus your investments earn you 500 bucks. Like which one's bigger? The 5,000 is bigger. So you need to focus on that and you need to keep building that and, and in reinvesting that money, until the investments can earn you as much or more than what you could save yourself, right? And so you'll see by the time you're, you know, 40, 50, your investments, if you do this properly, should be able to earn you more than you could save in a year. And that's how you know you've, you've done the game properly. And that's when you start to really, really focus on your investments once they're much older and have a lot more wealth. Yeah, that's that crossover point. I remember when I was in yeah. Your Money or Your Life, I remember reading that book, had a big impact on how I approach finances. And that was that one point. It's like if you're, the money you make from, I mean, I guess in Your Money or Your Life, they, focus, they focused on CDs which you probably shouldn't do anymore these days. But if your yeah. <laughs> money was if your CDs were earning more than your income then like you were you were good. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's one way you could look at it. I agree the CDs thing is not really a thing anymore, but um yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, CD ladders. I remember I had a CD ladder in high school. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was savvy. <laughs> so let's talk about how much you should save because I've heard all sorts of numbers. I remember when I was a teenager, I had this uh, adult this mentor and I remember we were driving in the car to someplace and he said, Brett, if you do these two things, you're going to be okay. If you set aside 10% of your money for, for giving and then 20% for yourself, save. And like, I listened and I was like, oh yeah, this sounds good. And so I, I've done that. What does the data actually say? Like, what's the appropriate amount to save? Is it 10%, 20%, 30%, what is it? See, I, in the book, I, I don't really like giving specific answers to this because the issue is our our incomes are a lot more variable today than they were when I think a lot of the savings advice was first created. You have to imagine, like, go back to like the 1950s. There's like a one income household, right? It's very stable, pension, all, a lot of lot more stability. So saving was something that was just like, oh, I'll just save 10% of every paycheck or 20%. So that's why a lot of the savings rules kind of came out that way. But now today, we usually have two income earners. We now have side hustles, like income's not far more variable. Like let's say if you were, you know, an Uber driver or something, like your income's going to vary every time you go out, right? So because incomes vary so much more today, and there's a lot of data showing this, it's really hard to say, like always save the same amount because given, you know, different costs and different income, how can you save the same amount every month? It's just like, it would be very difficult. You have to cut back or you have to do all sorts of stuff. So my philosophy is just save what you can. And so what that means is the real focus, you should really focus on just building your income over time and obviously spending you know, what you want to live a comfortable lifestyle. And then anything beyond that is what you save. Now, of course, you're like, well, Nick, I can just keep spending more and more and more. Of course, you could do that. But the, the point isn't to like, you know, lifestyle creep yourself into, into having no savings. It's just to be like, okay, I need this to like live my life and live comfortably. And then beyond that, you need to build your income. That's like, I think it's the way to like, you can, this is the lowest stress way to save money. And also the data supports it because there's no one right, you know, savings rule. And and the example I give in the book, when I was living in Boston, I had a 40% savings rate after tax savings rate, very high. As soon as I moved to New York, I 
didn't have any more roommates. So my rent went up. And also I took like a slight pay cut when I first moved here. So like my savings rate went from 40% after tax to like 4% after tax. Now I could have done 20% each year, but I'd have been under saving in Boston. And then I would have been living a really rough lifestyle in New York by trying to save 20% when I didn't really have money to, you know? So I think there's times when it's okay to save more than you might necessarily need to save. And there's times when you can, you know, save less because, you know, you're, you're going, you're getting higher costs or something at the time. So those are the things I would, I would try to focus on. Yeah. And you also highlight research that says when you're safe, like if you feel like you have to save 20%, but like, it's not possible, that's what causes a lot of stress in your, uh, mm-hmm. from your money. Yeah. And so some people say, well, just take that 20% of your paycheck right away. And okay, you can do that, but that doesn't change the fact that like, what if you don't have money? Are you going to go into credit card debt now to do that? I mean, you see the problem. It doesn't work that way. Savings always have to, I know people say pay yourself first, but realistically, like you have to pay yourself last, like at the end, even though I, I agree that like pay yourself first is a better idea if you can live off the rest of the budget. But in the event where your costs are too high or like, for example, inflation's going up, you know, used to go and it used to cost X dollars to fill up your tank. Now it costs X times 10 or times uh, 1.1, 10% higher. So it's like, what are you going to do? Well, I paid myself first and I don't have any extra money to fill up my tank now, right? You see the problem with that. So that's why you have to save last. Okay. So save what you can. Don't stress out about it. Okay. I think that's, that's probably, that's really useful for a lot of people. So in the personal finance world, you see debate about uh, which is the best way to build wealth. What are the two basic ways to do that? And which do you advocate emphasizing? If you're trying to save more, there's two options you really have. You either cut your spending, right? You spend less money or you raise your income. Now, cutting your spending, the issue is just has limits. And I've just, I've looked into the data, as I talked about earlier about Bureau of Labor Statistics. There's something called the Consumer Expenditure Survey. And basically, if you look at the households in the bottom 20% or the bottom 40%, like there's just not much to cut. I'll say, here's how much they spend on rent. Here's how much they spend on food. Like here's how much they spend on transportation. Like where do you cut? And like, there's not a lot of money they're spending. They're not really spending that much. They're not being extravagant. So it's like, they can't cut. Like once you're at that level, there's just a minimum level of spending you need to have to just survive. So the really the only way out, the only way to kind of save more that's sustainable is to raise your income, and that's that's the data shows that. I mean, the, the highest, the most positively correlated thing with savings rate is income. Those with higher incomes have higher savings rate. Like it's so clear in the data. It's been clear over time. We have like data going back to like to the 1930s that show that. Like show like even like high, people with more wealth tend to have higher savings rate. People with more income tend to have higher savings rate. I know this seems very obvious. Like you're like, oh, obviously, if I had way more income, I could save more, but like then why is there this huge contingent of people in the personal finance community talking, still talking about cutting spending? Don't get me wrong. You can do that, but it's, it's a short-term solution and it's not, it's not viable long-term. It's just, and it's also far more stressful to always be thinking about every single dollar you're spending and beating yourself up. It's not, it's not a, I think a mentally healthy way to live. Yeah. I think people, the financial advice goes to that because it's easy, right? It's like easier to be like, well, I'll just cut Netflix. I can do that right away and see a win as opposed to like, well, how can I figure out how to make more money? I agree. It's far harder, but that's, I mean, this is about sustainability, right? Just as like, you know, if you want to build something that's sustainable, it takes a long time. Like, you know, I've been blogging for over five years now and I didn't make really any money for the first three years. I had some like Amazon affiliate links. I made like a thousand dollars a year considering I'm spending 10 hours a week, you know, I'm spending 500, I'm spending, I'm making $2 an hour right, for the first three years. And then I started running ads because my audience got big enough and now I make more than that. So it's, it's obviously been helpful, but that's an example of like, yeah, it can take a long time, but it can, it can work. And I know there's far better monetization opportunities than starting a blog. I think I did one of the worst ones out there, if I'm being honest. So, you know, just getting a side hustle, things like that. That's how you can grow your income, teach people, tutoring. There's all sorts of different things people can do 
And especially with the gig economy where you can make extra money, find a skill that you really, or some expertise you have and sell that. There's a lot of ways to grow your income. But ultimately, all that income should be used to buy income-producing assets. And those things are going to start paying you. That's like stocks, real estate, you know, index funds, things of that sort that'll just pay you over time. That's kind of the main goal, I think, of, of all of this. Okay, so find ways to increase your income because that'll allow you to save more. And because you can save more, you'll eventually get to that crossover point where your money's working for you. Yeah, or it's, it's always working for you from the right. very beginning. But yeah, at some point, it's going to be ideally, you know, in a good year, let's imagine like this, you know, in a good year, your investment portfolio should earn you more than you could save in a year, right? And you can imagine, let's go back to the $10 million person, right? They have $10 million. A 10% return is a million dollars. Do you know anyone that could save a million dollars after tax in a year? That's very, very difficult. You have to have a very, very high paying job to do that, right? So, you know, but getting to, you know, getting to 10 million is obviously going to be difficult as well. But you see the problem once you have that wealth or you see the issue, once you have that wealth, it's much easier to build more wealth. So the, the, the key is to kind of get there and just build it over time. Yeah, this reminds me, we've had Ramit Seti on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And he has this rubric I really like. It's like, instead of thinking about $5 questions, like think about $5,000 questions, right? Like figure out how you can like make $5,000 more by you know taking a side hustle or maybe asking for a raise. Instead of thinking about, well, if I cut $5 a day for my spending, that's not going to give you very much. Yeah, completely. Right. And thinking about like the big things. And a lot of this is surprising too. You know, when I first started the blog, I wasn't thinking about any $10,000 questions whatsoever. You know, I was just writing and just doing it because I love it. So I think a lot of times you have to follow your interests because like I can tell you, hey, go do this thing because it's going to make you more money. And like, unless you love it or you love the money so much, it's going to be really difficult to keep doing that thing, you know? So that's the, that's what I would say is like find something that really follow your interests. And if you can, you know, find a way to kind of monetize that in some way where that's teaching people or selling a product or something like that that's the way to go and i think it's with the internet economy it's so much easier today like even places like gumroad you can sell digital products to anybody right and obviously distribution is the hard part how do you find people but you know that's why i use twitter reddit things like that that can help you know find people you know that are like-minded that might like your products well let's go back to this idea of you know a lot of personal finance advice out there is about basically making you feel bad about spending money, right? Everyone's heard like the avocado toast meme that's been going on for a couple of years now. But you have a system that allows you to spend money on what you want, like what will give you fulfillment and meaning while at the same time saving. So what is it? It's called the 2X rule. Can you walk us through the 2X rule? Yeah, so anytime you want to splurge on something, the 2X rule is basically just like, let's say you want to buy a nice pair of dress shoes, right? It's $400 pair of dress shoes. If you, want, if you consider that a splurge, you would save $400 for the dress shoes and then you'd save another $400, so 800 in total, 2x. And you take that other 400 and you can invest it in income producing assets, you know, such as, you know, S&P 500 or international stocks or, you know, a REIT ETF, you know, real estate investment trust, things like that that'll that'll earn you income. So, if you ever feel that guilt of splurging, this is a way to kind of offset that. And you don't have to just like invest. You can also donate that money too if you don't want to invest. So, there's a lot of different ways you can you can do this. It's just a simple rule to kind of get over spending guilt because a lot of times we we guilt ourselves into spending on ourselves, which is kind of silly. I mean, that's why we work for this money anyways, right? We work so hard for it. Why not, you know, spend it on ourselves at times? But because we guilt ourselves so much, I think that's a, a simple way to kind of get over that. But in addition, I think just people always talk about, oh, I, you know, I want to maximize my happiness. I don't think that's actually, that's a decent rule, but I think a better rule is maximizing fulfillment. And I think the difference, a very simple example can show you the difference. I would say if you're like into like rock climbing or mountain climbing, things like that, like 
climbing Mount Everest is probably a very fulfilling experience. I would say it's probably not a happy experience. Like based on my understanding of those people that go up there and the oxygen deprivation, how you know physically difficult it is to do that. Like I would not say you're in you're in a happy state while you're there, but I would say it's a fulfilling thing to go through that journey. So I think that's the thing to think about. It's like what's going to fulfill me in the long run. And then spend money on those categories versus like, oh, well, this is just going to bring me happiness, right? I think they can be correlated, but they're not always the same. I think just to figure those out, that's kind of the hard part. Yeah, I think there's another way you can find, you know, okay, we've kind of been knocking, looking ways to like cut spending. But I think that's a, that's a useful rubric, you know, just focus spending your money on the things that actually bring you fulfillment and then cut spending on the stuff that like, man, this just it might give me a little happiness and fun momentarily, but it really doesn't do much for me in the long term. So like for me, I don't really spend a lot of money on clothes. That's like, I'm not a clothes hound. I'm not much of a foodie. So I like, I'm not big into like restaurants, but like what I love to spend my money on is uh, workout equipment and books. And I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. But I'm for another person might be, well, they love buying clothes and it gives them a lot of fulfillment. Well, okay, do that instead of spending money on, I don't know, workout equipment if that doesn't bring you joy. Yeah, I think that's another thing too, is we we try and say, well, the data shows this. Like, you, I mean, the data is helpful for a lot of things, but there are times when it's just not going to be accurate. For example, there's, you probably heard this before. It's like, oh, people are much happier when they spend money on experiences over things. I generally agree that's true, but what happens if that's only true for like extroverts, let's say? And if extroverts are let's, you know, they estimate, you know, extroverts are somewhere between 50 and 70% of the population. So if that's true and you ask most people, what are they going to like spending on? They're going to say, extroverts are probably going to say experiences. But what about the introverts that are 30%? They may not like experience as much. They may like things like books or something else, right? I'm just coming up with categories. But you see the point. Like data is good. It's useful for like figuring something out and exploring. But you really, at the end of the day, have to define what experiences you want or what things you care about. And if that's like fancy watches or fancy cars or whatever, that's fine. I don't think you should let anyone guilt you for that if you truly enjoy them. I think it's just about figuring that out. That's the hard part, right? Figuring out what you want. Know thyself, right? This This goes back to like the Greek ages. Right. Yeah. So like figure out it's important to line up your spending with your psychological profile. I think that was another point you make in that chapter too. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like there's certain people that, you know, this, and we can kind of get into this later, but just like, even with debt, like there's certain people that are so debt averse, they don't want any debt, like not even mortgage debt. So they'd rather rent forever. And if that's who you are, you just hate the feeling of having debt, then yeah, you got to make sure that your stuff matches or your spending and your, your financial decisions match your personality. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Advance is proud to offer free curbside services at most locations and for most vehicles to help drivers like you get back on the road. Head to your local Advance Auto Parts to get your existing battery tested for free. Need to buy a new battery? They can recommend and install one that's right for you, including the powerful, durable, and reliable Die Hard battery. Plus, Advance team members will test your starter and alternator to make sure your car starts and charges for even the longest of road trips. They'll also install your new wiper blades for free, loan out tools for your DIY projects, perform check engine light scanning, and more. Go to advanceautoparts.com, download the Advanced mobile app, or visit a store for more details. And now back to the show. So something I think a lot of younger people are worried about today, you know, they're in their 20s or their 30s, and they think, man, I've got to save so much for retirement. You know, people are living longer these days. I might have 30 or 40 years where I'm not working at all. You know, healthcare costs are going up. And so I'm afraid I'm not going to have any enough money when I'm old. But you point out data that says, yeah, you're, you're probably going to be okay. You probably don't have to worry so much about it. So what do the numbers say there? 
Yeah. So the first thing I just want to dispel this myth. Everyone thinks that Social Security is going to run out of money. Like, oh, we're just going to get zero. And I think there's a lot of people, especially in millennials, who believe that we're not going to get any money out of Social Security. And if you actually look at the reports, like Social Security is definitely not going to run out of money. It's, I mean, even if the the trust runs out, like future workers paying into the system will be able to pay benefits to at least 70%. So I think benefits will be reduced. They'll probably raise the retirement age. It's the only way to kind of make the system work. But to think you're going to get zero, I think is a little, is a little extreme. I just can't imagine that unless like the U S collapses. But in that case, like, you know, who cares about your investment portfolio? Honestly, you're going to need to like (laughs) figure out far more, (laughs) you know, far bigger problems than worrying about your retirement. Right. So I think that's the first thing, just social security, some social security will be there. So you really just need to save in, in excess of whatever your social security income is going to be. And right now, like for social security, it's about $1,500 a month. So it's not a ton of money. It's 18 grand a year, but still $1,500 a month, you know, that's not nothing. So let's assume that's indexed to inflation. Assume we get that. So then however much you're spending a month, you just need to save for that excess there. So that's one thing. And if you look at the data, there's just so much data that like retirees don't spend down their wealth. And so they end up dying with inheritances. So like the average inheritance of like someone in their 60s who dies is like 300,000 and someone in their 70s, it's higher and someone in their 80s, it's higher, right? It just keeps going up generally over time. And that was kind of shocking for me because I'm like, oh, you think oh, people are spending down their assets, right? They're going to run out of money. It's like, it doesn't always happen. Of course, it happens to some people, but most retirees end up dying with some wealth, right? And so I think that's something to kind of keep in mind there is like people are like, oh, I'm going to probably run out of money. It's like, mm, you probably won't because you're not going to, you're not, you won't even let yourself. That's the thing too is psychologically, a lot of people will just end up not selling down their principal. Only one in seven retirees sells down their principal in a given year, which is kind of shocking. Most of them just live off their investment. So if, like, if you have a $100,000 portfolio and it's, let's say it's, it's getting you 10% a year, most will just take that 10,000 plus their social security income and they're good. And they won't even touch the hundred thousand. It'll just stay there at a hundred every single year, basically. So that's kind of the way to think about it, but that's kind of, you know, what I've seen in the data. And that's why I don't think people need to worry as much about how much they're saving for retirement. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about debt. So you mentioned, you know, some people, they're just very debt averse, but what does the data say? Is, is all debt bad? Like, and if it's not like, when is debt? Okay. Well, I mean, debt isn't good or bad. It's how you use it. Right. And it's, there are certain circumstances. I mean, I think the main principle I have around debt is like the people that are best served to use debt are people who don't need it, which is kind of shocking. Like if you think of, I can give some extreme examples, but I think they illustrate the point. You'd say like, you know, Elon Musk, you know, at one point was the richest man in the world. Maybe he still is. Now, I don't know. I don't check it every day or whatever. But when he's the richest man in the world, why would Elon Musk have debt? It's like, that seems so crazy. He has all this money. Why would he need to borrow? Well, he just basically, he didn't want to sell his Tesla shares, so he basically used them as collateral and then borrowed from a bank. So in case something happened and he couldn't make a payment on his debt, he could just give them some of his Tesla shares that he had as collateral. So that's an example where he probably got a very, very low interest rate from a bank, and he was able to, you know, as a result of that, not sell his Tesla shares, which are likely appreciating faster than his interest rate. And so because of all that type of stuff, he didn't need debt, but he took it and used it properly. And I think that's the same thing. Like there's a great book out there called The Value of Debt and Building Wealth. And that really kind of changed my worldview on looking at debt. Now, of course, there are certain types of debt which aren't favorable, generally credit card debt. I don't agree people should have it. But there are cases where if you're in a jam and you really don't have a lot of cash, that maybe you need to use that to like get out of it. But you, as long as you know you're you're going to try and find ways to you know increase your income or maybe cut spending to get out of that hole, that's important. You know, I don't want people to be spending frivolously, but like there are cases where to be made to use credit card debt. And I give an example in the book of these people who are called borrower savers, for example. They might have a $500 credit card bill and $1,000 on their bank account. You're saying, well, that makes no sense, Nick. Why wouldn't they just pay off the 
$500 and just have $500 in cash right in their bank, right? And have no credit card debt. Well, the issue is if they do that, they may not have enough liquidity, you know, to take care of an expense that may be $800, right? That they need to pay right now, you know, and they can't pay with the credit card, right? So that's an example where someone may have just extra liquidity and they need the liquidity. And so they're using a credit card to, to pay for that liquidity, so to speak. So overall, I would say, you know, the times you use debt is when you can earn a higher return than what you're borrowing at. That That's obvious in cases like, you know, if you can a business or maybe student loans, depending on what you're going into. I think that really matters in terms of how it's going to affect your lifetime earnings. But in addition to that, like mortgage debt, I think is, is most people are okay with it. It doesn't affect them psychologically. Of all the types of debt out there, that debt really has the lowest psychological is a uh, stress profile. So if you have mortgage debt, most people don't really worry about or stay up and night. Oh my gosh, my mortgage. They don't really worry about that. There are some that would, but most people don't. So that's just something to keep in mind. What, what kind of debt keeps people up at night? Do we have any research on uh, that? It's usually financial debt, so credit card debt, debt that's owed to like friends and family, things like that, like personal debt that you take from people, you know, because it's harming your social capital. And I think people really are very cognizant of their, you know, their place in the social and you know the social hierarchy and all that. So those that's the type of debt you want to try to avoid that really does eat people up. Generally, debt of like mortgage doesn't. Yeah. So any type of non-mortgage debt, it can affect people. I don't know how student loans, I actually don't know the data on student loans in particular, but I just know like financial debt, particularly credit card debt does stress people out because the rates are so high, right? Yeah. And imagine if you take a loan from the mob, that'll also keep you up at night. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Those loan sharks will yeah, get loans, you for yeah, sure. Right. Well, as you mentioned mortgage, let's talk about the one of the biggest financial decisions that a lot of people make, and that's whether to buy a home or not. And this is another topic in the personal finance world where it, the debate gets heated. You see different opinions. So, I mean, what is your take? What does the data say about buying or renting? Yeah. So, I think if this is I the the two topics I dislike writing the most about are this topic here about real estate buying versus renting and taxes. And the reason why is because I'm trying to give general advice for something that's so individual and like specific to a specific region or area or person, right? Like in the case of taxes, if you're single or married, that changes things, right? How many kids you have? Do you have kids? That changes things. All sorts of, you know, what, how, where's your income coming from? That changes how you, what's the optimal decision profile, right? The same thing's true with buying versus renting. So I do have some general principles I follow, but I think Overall, I think it's more of a personal decision and less of a financial decision. And so I know we want to talk about all the financial levers and all that, but I think mostly it's more of a personal decision. It's like, are you ready to do this? And I give I give three basic like criteria I think you need to hit in order for you to consider owning versus renting. And the first one is I think you need to be there for at least 10 years. And the reason I say that is transaction costs tend to be, you know, on average around 6%, including everything, you know, if you have to pay it. Realtor closing costs, any of that type of stuff. When you add all that up, it's usually about six percent of the price of the home. And you know, the real return on housing since like I don't know the the early 1900s is something like 0.6 percent a year. It's been much higher than that recently, but just through for most of history, you know, homes have gone up by you know 0.6 percent a year. So ten times 0.6 is six percent. That's how you negate the transaction cost. So if you're there for ten years, the transaction cost should be negated out on average. The second thing is you need to have a stable personal or professional life. It's it's really tough to like buy a home as a single person and then, oh, you're going to get married and have kids and the home isn't big enough for that and then you need to sell and pay the transaction costs again, right? So ideally, you want to not pay transaction costs. So that's another thing. So the personal life or professional life, right? You don't want to go in, hey, I just got this really risky job or maybe I might have a startup and you know my income's not going to be very variable or something. You don't want to 
take on a bunch of debt where you have to make payments every month and you have no idea what your pay is going to be that month. So I think that can also be risky. And lastly, you have to be able to afford it. And what does afford it mean? We can go back and forth on that. But I think, you know, what they consider a qualified mortgage is a debt to income ratio that's less than 43%. So if your monthly debt, let's say you make income of $5,000 a month and your payment, that's gross income, and your payment, your mortgage payment's two grand a month, that's 40%, right? 2,000 over 5,000 is 40%. So as long as it's below 43, it's qualified. So those are the three things, you know, be there 10 years, stable, professional, and personal life. And, you know, you can afford it, which is, that's obviously harder to solve for, but there, there are ways you can look at that. And I think if those things are there, then you should own over renting. Otherwise, you know, I would say, hey, maybe consider renting a little longer. Right. I don't know. If, tell me about this approach that I've had towards owning a home. I've So I know a lot of people think about buying a home as an investment. It's like, well, this is going to be a store of wealth. I've never really thought of my home as like part of my store of wealth. Like I bought a home. I treat it like I, you know, I'm buying like a car or something, you know, just, this is, it gives me utility, but there's also like all these, this intangible value that I get from owning a house. It's like where I can build a home and make memories for my kids and I can remodel it and do stuff that I want to it. I'm never really thinking about, well, you know, when I'm 20 years from now, I'm going to be able to sell this thing and pocket a bunch of change. Is, is that a, a good way to think about, should I be thinking of my home as a, as an asset? I mean, I agree with you that like a lot of the home part is the societal thing. It's the social thing. It's the personal values and things you care about, which you mentioned here. I would not necessarily consider home an investment in a traditional way because it's really like, let's say your home goes up, you know, twice, you know, two X in value, right? The question is, can you make anything off? Can you eat that equity? And unless you sell that home and go to a much cheaper area, because think about it, if your home went up 2x, probably every other home in your neighborhood went up 2x. And I'm assuming you want to live there for some reason, right? You you like where you live. Then it's like, the only way you can cash out that is if you sell in one place and move to a much cheaper area. That's the only way that it becomes an investment. You kind of can cash out some of that equity. But most people generally live in the same areas. They don't move too far away. So they're never going to be able to see that. So I don't like thinking about it as an investment. It can be an investment in certain circumstances. But usually it'll just kind of keep pace with inflation. So over time, it should keep pace with inflation, which means, you know, it's going to be either passed down to someone else and they're going to really enjoy it, the, the investment. So it's not really an investment for you, but it could be an investment for, you know, the next generation, right? Your children, if, you know, when, if you eventually pass, you know, you pass on the home and then they either keep it or sell it or whatever they do with it. So that's where the investment part, I think, comes in. Gotcha. Well, let's uh, move to, we've talked about saving, we've talked about debt, we've talked about, you know, more, there's some big personal finance decisions that people have to make. But let's talk about, okay, we're saving our money and we need to invest it. You're saying when you're first starting to save slash invest, like you shouldn't spend a lot of time and bandwidth thinking about, well, it's my allocation. It's like, you know, I'm going to maximize this. So what do you recommend for someone who's just starting out? Say there's, it's a you know, guy listening, they're in their you know, 20s, they're just starting to work. They've opened up a 401k. How should they invest their money so they're not having to actively tinker with it all the time? Yeah, I think they should just be broadly diversified into income producing assets. And so what does that mean? Income producing assets is a very, you know, vague term, but it includes things like stocks, bonds, real estate. And there's different ways you can do real estate, whether you're owning an investment property or you're buying real estate through, like, as I mentioned earlier, real estate investment trust, which you can get through an ETF index fund type thing. I can't mention specific tickers for compliance reasons, but if you search, you know, S&P 500 index fund, you know, you can find a very cheap option that will give you broad access to diversified access to the U.S. stock market, right? So I think that's the simplest way you buy those things, you buy them over time, you don't worry about it. You focus, spend more of your time focusing on your career and saving more money. 
And then as you start to acquire more and more wealth, then you can kind of fine tune and say, hey, do I really need a, then you can start saying, hey, do I need something like art? Do I want to have something like crypto? Do I want to have something, you know, and all you can start adding these other things, which may not be income producing. But I think the bulk of your assets should be in income producing. You know, I'm not against crypto. I'm not against art. I own both of those types of those asset classes, but they represent a, a minority of my portfolio. So I, I'd have a about uh, 85 to 90% of my assets are what I would consider income producing in my portfolio. And the other 10% are things like that aren't income producing, which is crypto, art, and I think a handful. I would also, I have some private investments in companies, but I consider those because they're like, I'm like seed angel round. I don't even consider those as income producing. So I consider them as like kind of like a lottery ticket type thing. So that's also in the non-income producing asset, but could become income producing one day. So someone who's just starting, yeah, go just, you can just do some research, find like, you know, um, broadly diversified index funds. There's not, there's not, a better, I mean, it's, they're so cheap and they just, they work really well and they to build wealth over time. Yeah. I think most of the major, um, investment firms, like they have, they, they offer some sort of index fund that you can get. So focus on that. And then once you are getting that going, then you can do, you know, use a small percentage of your savings for that fun stuff, cryptocurrency, Mm -hmm. art, et cetera. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the title of the book. It's called Just Keep Buying. And this is the idea that you should just constantly keep buying and investing in the market, you know, putting your money in income-producing assets. When I first saw the idea of Just Keep Buying, I instantly thought of dollar cost averaging. For those who aren't familiar with dollar cost averaging, can you explain like sort of the common conception of dollar cost averaging? And then I guess maybe how is Just Keep Buying similar and different from that common conception? Yeah, so just keep buying is basically dollar cost averaging. It just has the psychological motivation built in. And it's also, it's to be honest, it's catchier. I mean, no, it's dollar cost averaging. I mean, it's fine. It's been there for a while, but just keep buying is just a catchier phrase. I think it would be more eye-popping. But I think one of the issues with the term dollar cost averaging is there's actually two definitions for it. So my understanding is the original definition, which I think got popularized by Ben Graham. You know, Ben Graham, who did securities analysis, was like the mentor to Warren Buffett. He said like, Dollar cost averaging is when you're just buying over time, right? Like, so if you have a 401k, every two weeks you get paid, you're buying, you know, you're taking some money, you're buying into the market or whatever you're buying, whatever basket of assets you're buying into, you're buying them over time, right? That's the original definition of dollar cost averaging. At some point, the second definition came up, which is imagine, you know, you sold a business or you got an inheritance, you have a big chunk of change. Let's say you have $100,000 to invest. Instead of putting that all into the market now, which people call lump sum investment, they say, oh, you should dollar cost average that investment and slowly average into the market over time. I do not like that definition because think about it. It actually means the opposite of the first definition. The first definition of dollar cost averaging means investing as soon as you can with whatever money you have, right? Investing now, right? The second definition, which is like averaging in slowly into the market with like a large amount of money. That's the exact opposite of the other definition. So I think this is so confusing because you have the same phrase being used for two different definitions. And I've been on the war path to try and fix this for a long time, trying to tell people to stop using the second definition because that's kind of a more, you know, that's a newer definition basically. But it's not going to change. This will continue to cause confusion. So basically, long story short, the good dollar cost averaging, just keep buying, that is the good version of it. The bad version is the one that slowly averages into the market over time because it's suboptimal. I show in the book why investing now is far better than averaging in, as I call it. So that's what I would say in terms of 
understanding dollar cost averaging, the confusion that you'll you'll hear when you read, you know, you might read a post that says lump sum versus dollar cost averaging. That is the second definition. That's not the definition that I'm using in the, which is I think true to history and true to how it was invented or popularized at least. Well, can you kind of walk us through? I mean, I, I know you can get in the weeds with this stuff because I thought that was interesting because mm-hmm. I've when I've uh, read about dollar cost averaging, I've always seen that second definition, right? Well, if you have, let's say you have $100,000 to invest, you inherited $100,000. Mm-hmm. Well, instead of investing it all at once, you want to break that up throughout the year because, you know, one month the market might be up and then another month the market might be down, the market might be up the next month. And so overall, like you, you get your money in at different times and so it will you know, it'll even out, it'll average out, right? With lump sum investing, it's like, well, if you invest your money when the market's high and then it crashes, well, you just, you just lost all that. That's, I mean, I think that's what people think with dollar cost averaging. So why, why is the, that second approach to dollar cost averaging suboptimal from the lump sum investing? So it's suboptimal because the market tends to go up over time. And so I actually show in the book, I go through every I go through a bunch of different asset classes. I don't just use US stocks. I do US stocks, I do gold, I do international stocks, I do Bitcoin even. And I show that if you were to average in, which is the second definition for dollar cost averaging, that underperforms a, you know, buying now, which is putting all the money in now lump sum, right? 80% of the time and the average underperformance for every asset class it varies, but for the US stocks it's about 5%. So let's say Brett you and I got paid $100,000 at the beginning of this year. And I put all the money in in January and you slowly waited in. Now, in 2022, you would have been better off because putting in January, the market obviously crashed. And so you would have been better off in that year. But now, what if we'd done that in 2021 or 2020 or 2019 or 2018? Every single year before that, basically, anyone who put all the money at the beginning of the year would have won out. And so if you actually run that throughout history, run this experiment across every year in history, 80% of the time, you're better off by investing now. And just think about the premise of investing. The, the reason you invest is because you want these assets to appreciate and go up, right? It's kind of counterintuitive. It seems so silly to me to think like, oh, I'm investing because I want this money to grow, but I'm also slowly investing because I think it's going to crack. Like, it doesn't really make sense. Like, the premise of investing is you think the market's going to go up, and it generally does go up, right? And so because of that increase, you're generally better off putting the money in now. Now, of course, in the in the small cases, in the handful of cases, you know, 20% of the time when the market declines, you know, right after you put it in, that's unfortunate. But there's also, a, you know, a psychological component here, which is like the only time when averaging in or this, this second form of dollar cost averaging outperforms lump sum is when the market's falling. And that's the exact time when you're least enthusiastic to put money to work, right? So imagine, you know, it's, let's go back to February, 2020, market's starting to crash. Let's say you had $100,000 to invest. I would have lump summed it. Someone else would have said, hey, I'm going to start putting it in. They start putting it in February, 2020. March, 2020 comes around. The market's even lower. They may get scared and say, you know what? I'm going to wait until the dust settles, right? Next thing you know, the market within six months, the market's back at all-time highs. So it's one of those things where it's very easy to say this in a vacuum, but once you, t- the only time that averaging in beats like a lump sum investment is when the market's crashing. And that's the time when you're not going to want to do it. I mean, as simple as that. So it, I just don't, I don't think the data is there. And I don't think the psychological motivation is there either. So I say just lump sum and, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And I think some people might think, well, I'm going to lump sum, but I'm going to wait until like the market goes down. I'm going to buy the dip. <laughs> yes. Why is buying the dip a fool's game? With most income-producing assets, it's a fool's game because they tend to, it's the same argument I just made, they tend to go up over time. So the issue is when you wait to buy a dip, you're like, hey, I'm going to wait for a big dip. By the time that dip comes, 
the dip value is usually higher than where you could have originally purchased. And I'll give you an example. I remember I wrote, I actually wrote the blog post called Just Keep Buying back in April 2017. Five years later, the book came out. That was coincidental by chance. Anyways, I wrote this post and people were like, oh, the markets are too expensive. Back in April you know, 2017, people were saying markets are too expensive. I'm waiting until there's a crash. Let's say they waited and waited and waited. The big crash they got was in March 2020. That would happened. But even if they had bought on the exact bottom, which of course is impossible to time, but let's say they actually they bought on the exact day of the bottom, they still would have bought prices that were 7% higher than if they had just bought back in April 2017. Uh. So it's a perfect example showing you like you think you're a genius, like, oh, I just bought this dip, I got this big discount, but like you don't see all the the mistakes you made by not buying previously. And so that's a very extreme example. I literally took the bottom, which is like impossible to time, but let's say you did time it and I took this period, you know, three or four years prior, and I show like even if you had done that, you'd been better off just buying over time, right? So that's why buying the dip's a fool's errand because most of the time the dip is still higher than where you could have bought originally. Most of the time. Right. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule. Like Great Depression is a great example, but it's just those big dips are rare. They don't happen that often and they're so rare. Because of that, they're not that profitable. So you have to get lucky. Really, the only time buying the dip works is when you get really lucky. That's it, you know? Well, I mean, here's a question I have. Maybe this would be a great one to end on. So, I mean, right now... I'm feeling confused about like what to do, like, you know, what's going on with the economy. Like there's inflation and then like the market's volatile. And then like, you know, people might be like, should I buy a house now? Because, you know, prices are expensive, but I've heard they're crashing. And so you hear all these contradictory advice on how to manage your money in this situation. I mean, how are you thinking about it? Like for someone who's like confused, they're reading all this stuff, like, man, what do I, should I spend my money now because inflation might decrease the value of the money in my bank account? Any advice for people who are feeling confused about what to do with their money in our current situation? I mean, there's this great phrase that goes, you know, history doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. I think by, you know, understanding that this kind of stuff has happened before. I mean, I think the 70s is a great example of this. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. And just understanding that, like, we've kind of gone through these types of periods before and we're going to get through it and things will return to some normal, maybe not exactly 2% inflation in what we had in the 2010s, but maybe, you know, a, a lower inflation level, far more stability, things like that. I don't know when that will happen. That may take a decade. It may take multiple decades, but these type of things will happen and they'll pass. So I think the thing to realize is just like the more history, you know, the more comfortable you feel with what happens in the present, because these types of things, as I said, you know, they, you know, they don't repeat, but they rhyme in a lot of ways. And so you'll see people tend to, you know, human behavior hasn't changed that much, even though, you know, all the inputs are changing, human behavior is pretty stable. So how people react to things has been stable over time. So I would say, you know, keep doing what you're doing, obviously, assuming, you know, you're saving money, you're investing all that type of stuff and stay the course, right? That's the most important thing. You don't want to start panicking, making a bunch of changes here and, you know, cause yourself to go off course. That's what's most important. And then if you're not where you want to be, find ways to say, okay, what can I do over the next year, three years, five years, 10 years to kind of start moving in that direction, right? And thinking about planning that out, you know, and that's, it's not easy to do. Like, I don't say to perfectly plan your life. It's very difficult to plan your life. Just, you know, do what you can and, and see what happens. Fantastic. Well, Nick, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yes, yeah, so you can find my book, Just Keep Buying at Amazon.com. My website is of dollarsanddata.com. And also, if you want to DM me on Twitter, my handle is at dollarsanddata, all lowercase. And on Instagram, it's at Nick Majuli. I try to answer every DM I get. So feel free to send one if you have any questions or anything like that. Thank you. All right. Well, Nick Majuli, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it, Brett. Thanks. My guest today is Nick Majuli. He's the author of the book, Just Keep Buying. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. 
You can find more information about his work at his website of dollarsanddata.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash finance answers, where you find links to resources, where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not to listen to one podcast, but put what you've heard into action. In a stylish Toyota Camry, there's no such thing as an average commute to the office. Off to work. Woohoo! And with its available V6 engine, there's no run-of-the-mill drives to the pet groomer. Let's take the long way, Tiger. Because the always fun to drive, no matter where you're going Toyota Camry, is the cure for the common, well, everything. Next stop, the hardware store. To check out the Camry for yourself, visit your local Toyota dealer or toyota.com today. Toyota, let's go places. See packages and options at toyota.com for feature availability.